Okay, who can tell me what we talked about last week? Thank you, honey. Someone other than my wife. Who can tell me? She's paid to be good. Someone else? Not very much, but she is paid to be good. Eh? Principles. Yeah, that's a good answer. What did you say? The blessings. Okay, the be happy attitudes. Let's kind of start right there. And Jesus began in the most odd place for what was how to be happy. If you were to ask somebody today, how, to, how, how do you be happy? What would you say? Don't think Bible now. Just think what comes off the top of your head. How do you be happy? Oh, smile a lot. Okay. Marry pretty wife. Marry pretty wife. All right. What else? How do, how do you find happiness in life? Peace. Well, okay. Yeah. How do you find happiness? Family and memories. Follow your heart. That's very American. Trusting in a faithful God. All right, well, that's odd because Jesus, the first thing he said has nothing to do with you. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? Kingdom, Kingdom of heaven. You remember what poor in spirit we talked about last week? It has nothing to do with material issues. Poor in spirit is simply a recognition that I need God and can't do a thing without him. It is a total and utter dependence on God and God alone. See, which has, so my identity is found in him and not in my self-fulfillment. So the Bible would teach us that the path to true happiness is not in the pursuit of self-fulfillment, but the path to true happiness is in the pursuit of him and our relationship with him. But what else did he say was, uh, was the source for happiness? He talked about mourning. What an odd thing. And in our mourning that we would find a connection with God. He talked about the meek, which is being humble is a path to happiness. What else did he say? Hunger and thirst for righteousness will be what? Will be filled. Uh, he talked about the merciful. If you're merciful, God will be merciful to you. What else did he say is a key to happiness? Yeah? Peace. Yeah, being a peacemaker, all right, which is basically helping people get along. The pure in heart. And then he said, if you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, that's an odd way to, to find happiness. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, your happiness, in essence, is not going to be found in this earth. And it's not going to be found through the things of this earth. And it's not necessarily going to be found in material things. But your happiness is going to be found in my kingdom and in pursuit of me. That's how he started off this series, which is arguably the greatest message in Western civilization was the Sermon on the Mount. If you look back at influential messages that have shaped the culture of humanity as we know it today in the Western world, the Sermon on the Mount probably encapsulates more of the teachings of Christ than any other collection of Scripture. It's like Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you wanted to just, in a brushstroke, glean the teachings of Jesus in the most easy, systematic way, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and just literally buried yourself in it and lived in it and taught it to your kids, you would gain, in essence, the essence of what Jesus taught and what he valued as important. There's probably 20, maybe 25 different subjects he'll touch on in this Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what the context was for the Sermon on the Mount last week? It was a couple verses prior. Because, man, as, as I taught you last week, you can't just pull out a verse arbitrarily. You've got to try to understand what it was saying to the original hearers and why did he say what he said. What was the context of this? Look back at verse 17. What's it say? First message Jesus preached was a message of repentance or of turning to God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Now, this word kingdom of heaven, you know what kingdom of heaven implies? Is it talking about heaven, the place where we live one day? No, it's talking about being under the rule of God. And what Jesus is basically doing as he begins his teaching is he say, listen, you are you, 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 you're living all across the, the all across the spectrum, so to speak. But if you want to follow my ways and the ways of the kingdom, you've got to stop going the way you were and begin going my ways. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. If you can imagine all the roadways that go through Texarkana and imagine with me that there's only one roadway to heaven. Let's imagine it's Highway 71 going north. OK, well, how many know people are on a lot of different roads? They may be going on Highway 71 south, which is in the totally opposite direction. They may be going 30 east. They may be going 30 west. They may be going 82. You know, 82 goes out that way, and then it goes to New Boston. It shoots up to DeKalb. Uh, what else is around us? They may be going on 67, which is kind of going this way. So people are going all different ways. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount basically said this. Hey, wait a minute. There is one way which is called the kingdom of heaven. There's one way I want you to go. And you're going to have to turn from the way you're going and adjust your outlook, adjust your priorities, adjust your values. And I want you to go my way. And that's the same thing he's calling us to do today as he introduces us to this Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want to share with you this evening, if we have time, to look at three different things. Now, mind you, Jesus would, would take two, three, four, six, eight verses, and he would talk about a subject, and then he would move on to a different subject. Now, tonight we want to talk about something called salt and light. As a believer, what does that mean? Then we'll look at a section that talks about Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. And lastly, we'll look at a favorite about murder beginning in your heart. It's an amazing thing how Jesus, and you'll see when he talks about murder, he goes from a gun and a knife in your hand to the very attitude of an unjustified anger in your heart towards another person. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take the teaching that they knew from the Pharisees and religious teachers and take it to a whole other level. So let's begin in verse 13. Believers are something called salt and light. Now, mind you, this is the first thing Jesus said was this is the way to be happy. And now he's going to set a standard for how we're to live as believing people. He's going to kind of tell us not just things we should do, but he's telling us the kind of people we should be, the kind of edge we should have. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. What comes to your mind when you say that? You're the salt of the earth. You're a salt shaker. You're a preservant. Okay. What else do you do? You flavor. You bring something out. Okay. So you have an ability to turn something that's just kind of bland and blasé to kind of bring life to it and bring focus to it. You're the salt of the earth. Salt is life-giving. If you don't have salt, you'll die. What good is it, though, is salt has lost its flavor. Can you make it salty again? It's going to know it's going to be thrown out and trampled underfoot is worthless. So here again, when Jesus is teaching, he's comparing you to salt. And basically, Jesus is saying, if you don't have the ability to flavor food or flavor the people around you, you're not worth you're not worth anything. You might as well just be cast under the feet and stepped on. And then he says, you're the what? You're the light of the world. So these two pictures, you're salt and your light. You're like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. But how many know many people live the Christian life almost unseen and unknown. Many people will go through their life and no one will know they're a Christian. 
I know when I became a Christian at 19 and I went back and started telling my friends, I was amazed at how many told me that they were Christians and they had gone to church and they knew the Lord, but yet not one of them had talked to me about Christ. Not one of them had lived a life which basically said, hey, follow me, you knucklehead. In other words, they were almost living a hidden life. Uh, No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but instead a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. So here's the picture. You, Christian, are supposed to be living in such a way that that you're not a hidden lamp, but you're supposed to be out in the public view, influencing people, so it's no question whatsoever that you are a Christian. And the reason you're to do that, verse 16, is so your good deeds may shine out for all to see, so everyone will praise your Father in heaven. So it's like people see the way that you're living in your life, and what it does is it points them to Christ. It's a reflection of God in heaven, that God is real because of the way you're living. So let's kind of pause just a minute, and I want you to punch your neighbor and say you're like salt and light. You are like salt and light. Let me make a couple observations on that. First off, a disciple of the kingdom who does not live like a disciple is like tasteless salt. Well, you can't say invisible light, but it's like a candle that's not lit. So a believer can either be someone that's affecting the world. So if you say a believer is salty, it means something like a believer will go against the edge of culture. If you're, let's say, in your workplace or you're at home and and, and let's let's say they're watching something immoral on television. Whenever I watch TV, I watch with a little flipper in my hand. I hope you do. I mean, and there's certain things you just know when it's coming. Well, listen, I choose to live different, and I choose to want my children to live different, so there's parts of the TV show we don't get to watch. Are you with me today? I give them a chance or two, but if they're just going to say a bad word every other breath, I'm changing the channels and hitting the delete button. I mean, you just need to be different than people in the world. If you're going to go to a movie and it's beyond what, what should be a reasonable expectation, you need to get up and walk out. I mean, there needs to be someone that's saying, this is not right. We live in a world today where truth is somewhat known as is, is arbitrary. Everybody gets to decide what's true. You get to make it up on your own. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. And you and I need to be almost abrasive sometimes by saying, this is not right. This is the way to go. People need to, we need to be the ones that's giving context to the world around us. We're the ones that's showing people how to live. And if we don't do that, Jesus said we would be worthless. We would be worthless. So in the same way that salt, what salt does for food, you're to do to the world. That is, you're to take a bland world and make it life-giving for people that are everywhere in the world. Now, here's another picture here. Salt can sometimes become diluted. Now, the salt that they, most of the salt that they would gain, they would get it from the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea had a lot of other minerals in it and a lot of other tastes in it as well, as you can well imagine. And if they were, let's say, trying to clean that salt up, what could happen is if they were to use water and dilute the salt as its ability to influence, or if they were trying to wash it away, they could only be left with the impurities or the other stuff. So what Jesus is saying then is you and I can't allow our lives to become diluted we can't allow our lives to be just so almost blasé and passé. Like, like if, if you've ever been to someone, let's say, that has stomach problems and they can't eat very much. Now, me, thank God I can eat jalapenos and peppers and, and, and onions and pretty much anything on the plate and the more the barrier. I mean, anything I get, I'm ready to put some more seasoning on it. But I have very good friends that their stomach, their digestive system, w- just won't allow it to, uh, to eat things like that. And it's like their food is just bland and it's just tasteless. 
Well, see, that's what Jesus is saying. Don't be like that. Your life needs to be lived in such a way so people literally, when they're around you, people know that they've come in contact with someone that really and genuinely knows that God and that knows that God is real. Um, See, you and I have something the world doesn't have. You and I have something religious leaders don't have and the government doesn't have. You and I have true spiritual knowledge. We have wisdom. We have embraced and we know a way of life that will tell this world how to preserve itself. See, we're watching in America the disintegration of our culture before our very eyes. You and I are watching literally the disintegration of of everything that's true and holy in America. And it's like it's fading away. What's rising up is not just conservatives. Conservative is a good word. I consider myself one. But what I hope arises is not just a conservative Republican or conservative Democrat. I hope godly Christians begin to rise on the scene. I hope godly Christians, whether it's whether it's standing for uh, a, a marriage between a man and a woman, whether it's someone that's standing for life rather than someone that's for abortion, uh, whatever it may be, someone that turns the television off, someone that has a different set of values and a different set of standards. I wish, you know, my daughter has been a cheerleader in high school, and I think our kids should be able to be involved in our world, but someone else needs to pick out the songs those kids perform to. You can say, well, you're a prude. Well, maybe so. You understand what I'm saying? But if you get somebody on the godlier edge of life, on on the edge of life, of the righteous edge of life, there's just some things that you won't do. There's some places you won't go. There's some things you won't do. There's some movies you'll walk out of or you won't even go to. We need to have this salt in the world around us. But when we do, it obviously causes problems. Now, light is another example. Light, light, Jesus means that we show people the way to God just like a light does. We are a city that's set on a hill. We are not to be silent. Political correctness basically wants to keep Christian people, believers, inside the walls of the church. They don't want us outside the walls of the church. They don't really care what we do inside these walls. But if we, they just don't want us in the public arena. Well, guess what Jesus said? We need to be in the public arena. We need to be in the public arena with our ideas. Listen, I believe Christians need to be running for office. You and I need to be ones that are generating standards. You need to be on school boards. You and I need to be serving in places throughout our community, reflecting Christ, letting our light shine. But how many know the world doesn't want the light shining in their eyes? I mean, they just don't. But if you do that, guess what? You're gonna, you may encourage uh, hostility with the world, but you'll refine acclaim from Christ because you're salt and you're light. And that's the way Jesus said that we're supposed to live in this world. They want, Jesus wants men to see our good works so that they will glorify God because of us. That's the first thing he said. Believers are salt and light. Look at this next passage. This is a little bit interesting, a little bit tricky. Verse 17. Now, in the crowd that Jesus is talking to, it's not just people that are eager to be his followers. But in the crowd Jesus is talking to, he's got something called Pharisees and scribes. Now, a scribe is someone who is like a modern-day attorney, but they specialize in the Old Testament. A Pharisee, it was kind of like the religious ruling class. They were people that had taken the law of Moses to the nth degree. And sadly, many of the Pharisees were the ones who persecuted Christ. But they were like the religious ruling class that were supposed to be the experts in the Bible, but they had they had veered. So in this great crowd of people that Jesus had, he didn't just have simple hungry people. He had some religious people. Now, you've got to understand, even early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has a polarizing effect. 
See, Jesus, with you know, one of the first appearances that he makes, you know, first of all, they want to worship him, and then they're ready to throw him off the mountain because he, he, he crosses the lines all the time, and he's pushing the boundaries. And that's what Jesus is going to begin to do here. Jesus is going to show us what, where he stood in terms of the Old Testament law because the Old Testament law was defining in their culture. They had the Roman legal system that was ruling in the civic arena, but it was the law of Moses, it was the Old Testament, that defined their daily activities. Their whole life was governed and geared around this place called the temple that was run by priests, Levites, and this group called, by and large, the Pharisees. But notice what he said verse 17. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now, what's the law? What is the law? Yeah, it's the Ten Commandments, but it's more. It's the law of Moses. It's basically your Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus is saying, don't think I've come to abolish that or the prophets. What's he referring to when he talks about the prophets? Yeah, the prophets of the Old Testament, obviously, the major prophets and the minor prophets, which, by the way, the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is nothing but the length of the book. But basically what Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do away with the, with the law of Moses. Or did I come to do away with the teaching of the prophets? But what did he say? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Because, see, Jesus, as he's arising on this scene, it don't tell how many thousands of people are listening to this sermon that Jesus is preaching. So naturally, Jesus is creating a stir, and people are wondering what's going on. So he's, first of all, he's telling them, I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament law. I didn't come to get rid of the teachings of Moses. I didn't come to, to cast them aside. See, even the Jewish teachers of their day, if you were to question the law of Moses, it would be just like me standing up in this church saying, I don't think we need this Bible anymore. I just want to tell you what I think. I hope you would walk out of the building. See, but in, in their day, they would stone you. That would be blasphemy, and they would bring you before the priest. You remember when, when, when Jesus was on trial and they said, we've heard him speak blasphemy, we don't need any other proof now, let's kill him. So it would be the same thing if a religious teacher came up basically to say, and say, we don't need the law of Moses anymore. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to get rid of that or abolish it, but to fulfill it. So I'll tell you the truth. Now, how many know all of Jesus' words are by definition truth? But whenever you read in the Bible, for example, your King James says, verily, verily, or modern translations might say, truly, truly, or most assuredly, I say to you, when Jesus uses language like that, you want to underscore that because in the broad context of his teaching of truth, he's saying this is super important. He said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, when he talks about the smallest letter, you've heard the word not one iota, not one little, you know, mark. Well, he was referring to the smallest, uh, uh, the smallest uh, letter in the, in the Hebrew alphabet, the same thing in the Greek, which basically Jesus is saying, Liz, that whole thing is going to be completed, and it's going to be completed in me. See, something happened. You remember when Jesus on the cross, what did he say when he was on the cross when it was all over? It is finished. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he's about to die? yes. But in, he's about to die. What he was doing is he was putting an end to the Old Testament law as Moses portrayed the law. In other words, the sacrificial system where mankind would have to sacrifice animals to rightly relate to God for the forgiveness of their sin. Jesus was saying, I have fulfilled the whole law of Moses. Jesus was saying, I am the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was saying, I am your high priest. You don't need to go through a man any longer. See, in their day, in, in, in the temple... 
they had the outer courts, they had the inner court where the priests would make sacrifice, and then they had the holiest of holies, which had a big curtain that separated this altar where the priest would go once a year with blood to make atonement or pay for the sins of the people. Only one time a year he would go in there. Well, this curtain that separated this outer court from this most holy place, guess what happened when Jesus was crucified? It was torn in half. And what Jesus is saying, I have now provided you a way through my blood so you can have access to God the Father. So when Jesus said it's finished, all that this Old Testament law had anticipated and expected would be fulfilled in Christ. Now that just blew their mind. Because the whole identity of these Old Testament saints of the, in Jesus' day, the people living under the Old Testament, they thought it would go on in perpetuity. Now they knew that there would one day be a Messiah, but it surely couldn't be Jesus because he was the carpenter's son. See, but what Jesus was basically saying, I'm bringing an end to this whole system that you're knowing. That's why in the writings of Paul, when he went to the Gentiles, there were, many, there were many Jews that had infiltrated into the world that were trying to make Gentiles behave like Jews. And Paul basically said, uh, or the Jerusalem Council said, you don't have to do that. You're no longer under this Old Testament law because the law, according to the book of Galatians, was a what? It was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. So the whole purpose of the Old Testament law was intended to, it was intended to point people towards Jesus Christ. Well, the Pharisees couldn't see it, and Jesus said, I've basically come to fulfill this Old Testament law. Now, that was the fulfillment of its prophecies. That was the fulfillment of Christ as the Savior of mankind, as the Messiah, see, as, as the Deliverer, as the one that Isaiah prophesied about that would bear the sins of the world. Uh, look at verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But when you practice and teach these commands, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here again, once again, Jesus, Jesus now is underscoring the fact that, that his teachings, in correctly interpreting the Old Testament and what he's going to declare to them, really is defining what the kingdom of heaven is. And this was the rub that he faced with the Pharisees because they liked the system that they had. Now look at verse 20. Jesus makes a pretty startling statement here. Jesus said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. What was he talking about? Unless your righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Your right standing with God. Okay, so the way in which your life is conducted and lived so that you can be right in the eyes of God. Unless you're doing a better job at this than the Pharisees, listen, you've got no chance in the kingdom. How do we obtain righteousness? What does that mean? Got to talk loud. So righteousness for the believer is not... Excuse me, earned. You couldn't do enough good things to be made righteous. Hence, God declared you righteous by the blood of Christ. It's like the blemish that we have that separated us from God, our sin. Somehow the blood of Christ forgives our sin. It washes our sins away. And God declares us righteous. 
It's like, let's say if, if you owe a big mortgage and you can't pay it, and uh, the bank, and someone comes up and said, maybe you got a, you know, you got a, uh, an uncle somewhere that loves you and you don't know it, and he's got a lot of money, and the uncle says, I'm going to pay my, I'm going to pay my, my, my nephew's house payment, and he pays it in full. Well, listen, you, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't pay that note under your own ability. You didn't work to get the money. Somebody did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, and they made you debt free. Well, Jesus made us righteous by his death on the cross. So righteousness is imputed to us, or God declares it, or, or he like puts a righteous robe on our lives. But then we're expected to live a righteous life. See, we're expected to walk out this life and this righteousness that, that Christ has given us. But you can't earn it, okay, which is a very, very key thing here. You cannot earn the righteousness that God will provide for us. Uh, being when he talks there the latter part of the verse there that you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven he's not talking about going to heaven see there is in according to the bible a literal place called heaven and a literal place called hell it's real it's out there but when jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven it will include this place one day called heaven but it's not the location it's right here in our midst see the kingdom of heaven is that kingdom that's under the rule of king jesus and what Jesus is calling people to do is to come into his kingdom, and hence they were, they were following his kingdom. All right? So basically, in, in a nutshell, what Jesus is, in this portion of the message, Jesus is not really telling us anything, but he came to fulfill the Old Testament law. It was all found its fulfillment in Christ. Then he gets real practical. Look at verse, verse 21 when he talks about murder. Now, according to Jesus, how many murderers are in this room today? Let me see your hand. I want every murderer to lift their hand. About half of you. See, now what you're going to see in probably the next 20 verses or so, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take a standard of the Old Testament law and he's going to bring it up to a higher level. Because here's what the Pharisees were guilty of. The Pharisees were guilty of an external righteousness, which means they would try to do things that would make them righteous or earn favor in the eyes of God. They would be so minute as to, let's say if they had a mint plant, they would pull the leaves off and every tenth leaf they would give it as a tithe. I mean, they had it refined. Uh, the, the, the Jews, had, uh, the rabbis had what was called the Midrash, which was basically a commentary on the Old Testament law so they could explain what these nuances in the Old Testament meant. And I'll tell you what, they had, they had laws and laws and laws and regulations and regulations and regulations. But guess what they missed? They missed the whole heart of the matter. Remember when Jesus summed the whole Bible up, what did he say? Go to church, pay your tithes, uh, don't tell lies. What did he say? Love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Second, love your neighbors yourself. Everything else hinges on this. All the law and the prophets hinge on that. Which Jesus taught basically the heart of it is your relationship with God. And the Pharisees had dumbed it down to a list of rules of what you do. Have you ever, anyone ever, ever lived under what's called legalism? Which is basically this long list of rules of how to be right with God, which is oftentimes code for how to fit into our religious group. And that's basically what the Pharisees had done, but they had done it to the nth degree, and they were in a position of political power aligned with Rome, so if you didn't go by the book, guess what? You'd be killed. So they had a, a, a great deal of pressure that was operating there. So he's going to talk about murder. He's going to talk about adultery. He's going to talk about how you treat your enemies. He's going to talk about you know, lots of different things. And, and notice the way he words it. Look at verse 21. 
you've heard that it was said to our people long ago, you must not murder anyone. Now, what's he talking about? Talking about the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. And you've heard to our people long ago, who is he talking to? The Israelites on Mount Sinai, but also to the, those that lived after them, the Jewish people that lived after them. So basically, a standard would set on Mount Sinai, thou shalt not murder. Can anybody tell me what murder is? Yeah? It murders taking a life. So are soldiers on the battlefield murderers? Is the guy in Huntsville that pulls a switch, is he or she a murderer? What, why is that? Okay, it's a difference between murder and kill. Murder is killing that's not legal or sanctioned. Uh, murder is also not accidental. Let's say, let, let, let's say if you're driving your car, let's say you're hunting and you accidentally shoot someone, that's not the act of murder. You've killed someone, but you've not murdered someone. Murder is a deliberate act where you take someone's life with no... Uh, in other words, a soldier is operating under the authority, hopefully in a just war. A policeman is operating under authority of the civil laws of a society. Whereas if I were to get mad and, you know, just get mad at you and pull out my gun and shoot you, that would be murder. So here Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said to our people long ago, you must not murder anyone. And if you, anyone who murders another will be judged. And when he talks about judgment in this passage, as best as I can understand it, it is a judgment by civil courts, but is also a reference and ultimate judgment to God himself, where God will judge us on that great day. But notice what Jesus says when he takes it to a higher level. But I tell you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be judged. And some of your translations may say, if you're angry without cause. And if you look in the margin of your Bible, if it happens to say that, it's kind of a questionable area that in some manuscripts, it's not it may be there and some it may not be there. Like if you read in the highlights of your Bible, the little sidelines, it'll often reference and say this is maybe not in the most reliable or original manuscripts. There's probably about 1% is what it amounts to of your entire Bible from Genesis to the book of Revelation that is questionable in terms of when different manuscripts are compared. Now, an encouraging thing, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in, what was it, 1948, they found a copy of the book of Isaiah that was probably 600 years older than any other copy that they'd had at the time, and it was virtually verbatim. So the Bible that you have and that I have, though, you know, they have more found, our archaeologists have found more biblical manuscripts multiplied by a hundredfold of any other document in ancient history. I mean, it is scores and scores and scores and scores and scores of ancient manuscripts, and they're all virtually in, 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 in agreement. And any time there's a question mark that you might read something, we don't know if this is an original manuscript, you're, not, you're only talking about less than 1% of the Bible as you have it. See, and, and it's nothing, it's not on any big subject. Usually it's on the questionable subjects. But here Jesus, he goes from the act of murder to anger in your heart, with a brother or sister, you'll be judged. Now, how many know the same Bible also tells us to, that we're to be, be angry and sin not? You're in Ephesians? So Jesus is not forbidding the expression of anger, but notice as he tracks with this. If you say bad things to a brother or sister, now this is the New Century Version. I think some of your older translations say if you use the word raka, R-A-C-A, which is a Hebrew word that means you fool, you knucklehead. In my mind, I don't say, well, the way I was brought up, you know, that's, you know, knuckleheads, you know, that's just the way people talk. 
But Jesus is pretty much getting, trying to get our attention here of the verbiage that we use and how we call and treat other people. He said, you'll be judged by the council. This is the Jewish ruling council, the elders. If you call someone a fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. I, I don't fully understand what this means other than we better be careful the way we talk about other people. See, This whole passage is about harmony in relationships. If you want to look at these seven, eight, nine verses here, the whole message here is basically about getting along with people and loving people. What was the second great commandment? We're to love our neighbors ourselves. And how did Jesus say the world would know we're his disciples? By the... So here Jesus is kind of attacking the way Christians are treating Christians. If this was so serious, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they would take communion and people would die. The Bible says many people are weak, sick and dying because what? You fail to discern the Lord's body. And the most likely interpretation is, if you read the whole context there in 1 Corinthians 11, you would have believers that were coming together for a meal. You'd have poor people there that couldn't afford it. So the rich people were eating a full meal. The poor people didn't have anything to eat. And then they would share the Lord's cup. And it was, it was like a discrimination. It was an isolation in the body. And they were bringing judgment on themselves. And Jesus tends, is suggesting the same thing here. That if we allow relationships to be torn apart and if we add to it by the words we say and our lack of pursuing some sense of getting along, we could be in big trouble. Look at verse 23. When you offer your gift to God at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what does that mean? A brother or sister is offended at you for some reason. They're mad at you. They're angry at you. What does the Bible say we're to do? Leave our gift there, go and make peace with that person, and then come and offer your gift. So basically, Jesus is saying, before you do this act of worship, because mind you now, this is the Old Testament. This was not their altar. Their altar was a place that was literally covered with blood because priests would make animal sacrifices there to atone for the sins of people. It could be, it could be an offering of worship to God. But Jesus is saying, when you've got your gift ready to come to the altar, whether it was a sin offering or whether it was a, a fellowship offering, a wave offering, a grain offering, to say thanks for God's goodness, Jesus said, leave it there until you're getting along with your brother. Now, have you ever found yourself holding a grudge against someone for a long time? Have you ever found yourself being offended at someone? You know, giving them the cold shoulder, not wanting to talk to them, not wanting to relate to them? This is what Jesus is speaking into. Go and make peace with that person. And then come and offer your gift. In verse 25, it's like he amplifies it a little bit here. Jesus said, if your enemy's taking you to court, become friends quickly before you go to court. Otherwise, your enemy might turn you over to the judge, and the judge might give you to the guard and put you in jail. And I tell you the truth, you're not going to leave there until you have paid every cent you owe or every last dime. Now, it's one of two ways you can look at this. You can either look at this last verse as totally disconnected from the rest or that it somehow fits with the overall message. I don't think it's totally disconnected. I think as Jesus is trying to draw across the spectrum of relationships from your brother to your enemy. And in all of these, what's the, what's the common theme in this? What is Jesus calling us to do? That's right. We're to reconcile, or Jesus literally means that we're to make friends with people that we're enemies with. And I would encourage you, I don't know how you treat people or what kind of accounts you keep.
But I want to encourage you and say this. It behooves us to keep short accounts with people. It behooves us to forgive. It behooves us to love people, even people who treat us wrong and people who treat us dirty. See, our society today has created a professional class of victims so that when we are treated unjustly, I don't care. You know, no one could argue that the American Indians were treated unjustly. No one can argue that African Americans in America's early day were treated unjustly. But there are people that want to keep those and many other issues alive, and they almost their identity is almost built around the past rather than the future. I should be offended because during World War II, my grandparents were driven out of their country in Latvia and had 300 acres of land. That Bless God, that should have been mine in some way. And I could be angry and demand my rights, or I could bitter. You understand what I'm talking about? Everyone in this life gets offended, gets hurt, has trouble, bad things happen to them. And this does not preclude as Christians that we can pursue some form of justice. But when we find ourselves becoming antagonistic and hostile, as opposed to this whole message of reconciliation, the way we speak to people, the way we talk to people, Jesus just seems to say, you're going to be in big trouble. So he started out with murder, and he's brought it all the way down to how you treat people that are your friends, your brothers and sisters, and how you treat your enemies. And I want to encourage you. Remember, the place of happiness was to be a what? A peacemaker. And he seems to be repeating the same theme here as something that we're to pursue in life. Now, listen, if you've gone through the pain of a divorce, if you if you had a child that was taken from you, if you were raped, I mean, listen, we, we have things that happen in life that has mega hurt that follows us. And it doesn't minimize or negate that pain, but somehow as Christians... You know, listen, you could have had a business partner that stole from you. You may be in a lawsuit and may be treated unjustly. You've got to be very, very careful about what you allow to grow on in the inside of you. I will suggest this as a Christian. In these situations, the world knows how they act and how they would react. This could become a platform for us to let our light shine to the world so the world could see that I'm not behaving as an angry victim, but somehow the love of Christ and the grace of Christ is upon my life, and I'm responding in a different fashion. It's like when you get under heat and fire sometimes, it's kind of it's what comes out. Well, Lord, we just thank you that we've had a few moments tonight to open the Bible and, and try to go into some of what arguably is the greatest message that Western civilization or the world has ever heard, the Sermon on the Mount by Christ, these chapter, three chapters in the Bible. I just pray, Lord, that we might not just hear it, but we would live it that we would be light in our world, light in our home, light in our workplace, light in our society, that we would bring a flavor through salt that would, that, would, that would show people the way it's supposed to be. Lord, that you would help us to um, this whole issue about how murder goes from the way that you treat and the attitude that you have in your heart. Lord, that we would be living a step above um, what's required of us and literally our lives would be a reflection of Christ. So might you bless us all. Let this work first in us. And then let it work in our families and the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.